Brian here. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Go Be More podcast. At Go Be More, our mission is simple. We want you to chase your dreams, and our apparel is designed to be a constant reminder of your commitment. This podcast aims to give you the motivation and mindset to get started and keep going. In this episode, John and I speak with Sub4 Miler and long-term senior care entrepreneur, Brian Lindsay. Brian was a great runner who didn't end up having the career he imagined for himself. But the approach he took to it created relationships and developed skills that have helped to put him in position to chase his dreams today. And Brian is a natural connector and he took advantage of this to become close friends with not just his teammates, but his competitors too. And that approach led to many of his competitors becoming his teammates at later stages in their careers. He also talks about his focus on maximizing his potential and how he planned out his path to the Olympics as a high school sophomore, despite not even being the best runner in his area. Brian is a great example that you don't have to have the most talent to be great, and you don't have to achieve all your goals to have success. When you dream big, you accept the risks, and you put in the work, you will get something good out of it. Now Brian is working to take the same mentality and reform the way we do long-term senior care with his company, The Restoracy. They are seeking to upend the existing model of institutional nursing home care to restore health, dignity, and the familiarity of home to our seniors. This was a great conversation, and Brian's stories of his running career and his life journey are truly inspiring. All right, on to the episode. All right, Brian Lindsay, welcome to the Go Be More podcast. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Brian, I'm, I'm going to try to jump in here real quick so I don't have the awkward pause. Brian says I always leave an awkward <laughs> pause. <laughs> but no, this is, this is uh, for everybody, you know, listening to this episode, we're, this is a great treat. Uh, Brian and I have a really special connection, uh, both Brian's, but our guest, <laughs> Brian. Right. Yeah, this, this is already getting confusing. Yeah, I know. <laughs> right? No. Uh, and no, and so, not, so this is so exciting uh, to have you uh, spending this time with us, Brian. You have an amazing story. Uh, it's super inspirational for sure. Um, and I just love the fact that we've become such good friends. But at the same time, I, I've been telling some of the peers that have jumped on and, and given us an opportunity to share this story. Like, you know, I, I actually really admire you as, as well. As, even though we're competitors, I feel like there's just so much more to our sport than just competing against one another. And you and I, I think we're very fortunate we found each other because we've yeah, become no more like more like brothers than, than just competitors and stuff. So I think that epitomizes one of my favorite things about running is the relationships, you know, from junior high, high school, college, professionally, the people that you meet, the people you get to associate with. You know, we, we've talked in the past how fun it was to, to warm up or especially cool down. Usually more fun to cool down after the, the <laughs> yes. race is over yeah. and just kind of de-stress a little bit. But I think that when there, when there's a camaraderie in in running, uh, it can really be um, it can be kind of uh, oh what's the word uh, unifying uh, unifying but you know you you build on each other yeah so mm-hmm. uh, the the synergy there's the, there's a, there's a synergy effect when you have people that you know you're you're good friends with you're going out to battle but you respect each other so you both push each other there, there's not a negative you know i'm gonna i'm gonna go out and kill you but i'm gonna go out and push you 
and mm-hmm. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to try and beat you, but I respect you. And so with that mutual respect, there was, there was never any negativity in the racing. It was always a positive thing. And then you knew after the race, we were still going to be friends, but you know, one of us was going to be a little bit happier than the other. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it, yeah, and it no. was usually you, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, I don't know, man. You, you, had, you, we definitely had our days. I think we, uh, we, we had our days. In, well, yeah. Right. But you know, yeah. I have a question for you, Brian, about the camaraderie, because one thing I've noticed is that it seems to me that the higher level you go, and I kind of capped out at university, I didn't, I didn't continue going beyond that, is that the camaraderie starts to expand beyond your team and stuff. Like, I always felt like I had a really amazing camaraderie and some of my closest friends from high school, cross country, from college, running, running on the track team stuff. But um, I also noticed with John, and maybe this is a little bit John, but I think there's this once you reach another level and you're not really on a team and you're competing at the elite level, there's a camaraderie just amongst competitors even, right? And in a way that I think is, for me, was always harder to generate as a college athlete. I didn't get to know all the guys at Stanford. I didn't get to know all the guys at Arizona or something who I was competing against. But um, I, that might just be because you're cooling down with your team and not with, not with just the other guys in the race. You know, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Does it actually become easier to get to know your competition as you get better? Well, I, I was a little bit of an anomaly. I my my teammates, uh, it was probably more of a a diss than than a compliment. They they called me the ambassador because <laughs> I was probably more often warming up or cooling down with another team, <laughs> working on uh, relationships. Uh, gotcha. Sh- Should have gone into politics, but didn't. Um, <laughs> it was fun. I mean, I was good friends with my teammates. We had a good time. We we spent a lot of time together. But that traveling, going to the national meets, and you know those high level competition. That's the, hey, I, I only get to see John a few times a year. I'm looking forward to going to see John yeah. or the guys from Stanford yeah. or the guys from, you know, uh, the, even the conference schools. I, I look forward to seeing the people and that was an opportunity to expand my my friendships and the, the camaraderie beyond my teammates. So so may, maybe I didn't do it right. Maybe, maybe I was um, too social, but it I don't feel like it ever affected my racing. I never felt like I was dis, disconnected or, or – yeah. Un, unfocused for, for the races, but it, it was part of the fun. It was part of the experience to go and, and do this fun thing with some really cool people from around the country or from around the world. Yeah. I, I, I kind of felt the same way uh, as well. I mean, this, I, I got, I remember one particular like indoor meet at uh, university of Washington and uh, I, I was hanging out with you and some of the other guys and uh, before a race before like a three K race and my coach was so pissed he's like dude don't stop being cool with these guys you're supposed to be like not cool with them and i'm like why like i'm so looking forward to whooping on them in the race but afterwards i'm like i'm so excited to see them before i'm so excited to see them afterwards but when the guns goes off i'm like i'm not their friend you know i'm not gonna be nice <laughs> i'm not gonna be oh, right here you go first to be so i never thought like that so for me honestly i think it was the same way for you i i I, I, I actually felt like it was uh, something that fueled my passion for the sport and my and also my performance because I, I got so excited to see what we could do that day. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think it was fun. I, even to this day, you go to a road race. I, I've got that you know pre-race chatter, the nervous chatter or whatever. Right. I, I feel it calms <laughs> me down. So not everyone, I'm not yeah. recommending this for everyone. For me, like it, it never was a detriment. It, it never took away from the focus of the race. And if anything, mm-hmm. it actually lowered some of the anxiety before race. If I could talk about something other than, you know, all this pain I'm going to put my body through. I, I, I've done all that the days before. I've done enough of that. I, mm-hmm. I've visualized the race. I've done through all the proper visualization before the race. But leading up to it, like 
I don't need that anxiety to build. And, and, and some of the people might, and that might work and be a better formula. But for me, I mean, my best races were, you know, just after a good conversation with a buddy, you know, it's just, uh, yeah. it's it was never a deterrent. I feel yeah. I, I don't know. I, for me, I never really had that. And I don't know. There's two things. One is I'm more naturally probably shy and not as outgoing in terms of meeting people. But the other part of it is I think I had this attitude or, or this idea of how I was supposed, supposed to comport myself before the race. And so I was sort of forced myself to, to like go through a routine of concentration or something in a way that maybe wasn't ideal or, or the most natural for me, but it was sort of like, well, this is what runners do kind of thing. And, uh, um, it's funny looking back at it. Now you get older, you start thinking back, you say, wow, I I don't know if that was the right way to do it, but whatever it's, uh, um, sure. Well, we, we went off on this and I think it's great because we're, you know, that's the nature of the podcast. I love the, the, the fact that you guys were able to make a strong connection, even though you guys were competing against each other for your entire careers. And, uh, mm-hmm. but before we go into more of that stuff, can we talk a little bit, Brian, about where you sort of come from, what your background is, sure. where you grew up, um, how you got into running? Maybe you can tell us a little bit about what Brian Lindsay was like as a kid. Sure. Uh, oh, I was, I was always an athlete. I, I was born, um, with, you know, my running shoes on. I always loved playing sports. Um, my parents both went to BYU, so I grew up in Indiana. So I just get back to where I'm from. I grew up in Indiana. I was probably the only kid within 100 miles that had a BYU shirt. Okay, you know, yeah. People didn't know what, what <laughs> BYU stood for. Uh, I actually had a second grade teacher that wrote on my report card uh, that she was concerned about how much I was daydreaming about playing football at BYU because <laughs> I'd come to school and talk about all these sports that you know, for, had, had no relevance to anyone. And so I just, I, I grew up loving sports. I played all the little league stuff, played the baseball, basketball. Um, growing up in Indiana, basketball is king. Yeah. Um, John and I have had this conversation. The yeah. year that I moved to Indiana was 1986, the year that Hoosiers came out, yeah. the, the iconic movie. Um, Jimmy and that same year, yeah. <laughs> Jimmy Chitwood. And so I, I've, I've been to the gym that they shot the movie at, and I've, um, I've been to the the actual high school gyms where these actual real life teams were and seen their trophy cases. And you know, there, there's definitely some history there. Um, and also that year, 1987. So same calendar year um, there, the, the Indiana Hoosiers won March madness. And that was the first year that they made that montage that's titled one shining moment. Ah. And so this is back in the days of a VCR. Yeah, my my yeah. brothers and I, re- we recorded that. And then we would re- replay that over and over with, you know, these highlight reels, these, you know, fadeaway shots and, and all these different things. And so I just started dreaming of being a college athlete, whatever that took, whatever it, you know, to have that one shining moment to make it to March madness. And so, you know, I, I practiced for hours and hours in my driveway because every driveway in Indiana has a basketball hoop and, my sixth grade year uh, was also the year that I started running cross country because it was the only fall sport for boys. And so I had, you know, some relative yeah. success. I wasn't the fastest kid on the team, but you know, enough to, to be a contributor on the team. And then we get to uh, basketball season. I try out for the team, pretty confident as an, as an athletic kid that had played all the you know little league stuff. And I got cut and I was devastated, just crying and just, you know, what, what just yeah. happened, you know, now I'm never going to be cool. You got to be on the team to be popular. <laughs> yeah. My life's over. So I thought, okay, I'm going to work harder. So I tried out in seventh grade. I got cut, tried out in eighth grade, got cut ninth, 10th. I got cut five times. Um, and so that says more about my persistence than my athletic. Account, but, um, so so the, the end result was I was best suited for a sport without a ball. Okay. And so, you know, track, track and field made sense. And, and through those years, um, success continued on the track and on the, on the cross country course. Can I ask you real um, quick about basketball? back in that time you're playing you want to make the team you're getting cut but um 
were you training? Were you, were you, did you take any, were, were you doing anything specific to actually try to get better at basketball or were you just kind of playing with friends and then every, the year would come out and you'd, and you'd try to make the team again? So I'd, go, I'd gone to basketball camps at the, so Ball okay. State University. Rick Majerus was, was the coach uh, before he went wow. to the University of Utah. Yeah. And he, he's an iconic, legendary coach. Um, mm-hmm. And then a, a guy that followed him was named um, Dick Hunsaker. He took Ball State to the Sweet 16, which is the one time they've ever made it. I was a fourth grader. Um, but, you know, just, so just, it was probably more just effort, yeah. not so much the, the doing drills and things like that. Um, but there was just a persistence like, okay, well, next year, you know, because of all the time I'm putting in, I've got a better shot. Yeah. And I, I think that as, as the teams got more and more solidified based on, you know, their, their track record and the history with the coach and things like that, my chances got worse and worse. Um, and so I think that's one of the other reasons I loved running was there, there is no, um, uh, politics in the sport. That's it's, right. All right. Here's a stopwatch. There's the line. First guy across makes the team, you know, yeah, <laughs> there's, exactly. it's very objective. And so it was, um, there was no question as to whether or not I was, I was, you know, being successful or not. It, it was, there was immediate and, and uh, objective placement. Um, so yeah. I started running in junior high and and I was told you know that the more that you continued running the the higher the level the high school college that you know it would it would get more difficult but it could also be more fun and so I told myself that as long as I kept having fun and that it was wasn't a chore it wasn't you know drudgery and I was forcing myself to do the training um to this day, like running has always been fun. Um, and that's, that's a blessing. I recognize that that is not a mm-hmm. normal <laughs> right, uh, right. Gen- genetic thing that, you know, that for some reason I, I, I love to run, you know, when I've been injured and can start running again. I mean, my wife could tell you, I, I'm a much happier, better person. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's always a good, good thing for me. Um, but, you know, running in and of itself has just been fun, you know, being part of the teams. Uh, you know, we were talking early in the podcast about, you know, uh, getting together with with other college guys I, I was doing the same thing in high school like the, mm-hmm. there were there were guys that were you know state champions and other other levels like the division three division four like we'd go out to movies we would go on group dates uh wow. we, we would we would get together and, and hang out so you'd have guys like josh rotinsky and nate robison matt adams yeah uh, guys that i went went to high school you know competed against on the weekends on invitationals we're like hey what do you want to do tonight and that that wasn't normal and so it was wow. really fun. So when, when we're all seniors in high school and we're getting recruited by all these different schools, BYU was, was wise to all bring, to bring us in all at the same time. Yeah. So we got a bunch of friends, but hey, this is fun. This is cool. Hey, we could all be going here. And so it was, it was also difficult because with a lot of talented guys, track and field, you know, you've got 12 and a half scholarships yep. to, to divide up between 55 roster spots. And so, you know, all of us took a, li- a little piece of maybe we could have gone somewhere else with full scholarships, but um, by our senior year in college, when we were, you know, when we had forecasted to, to be a top team and we ended up being fifth in the NCAA, but you know, that recruiting started back when we were friends in high school. So this, wow. you know, when I was a senior, um, you know, our going back to this one shining moment in the final four and just, you know, the theme of basketball, our goal is to, to be a podium team to make me a final four team. Mm-hmm. And so that was, that was my parallel to <laughs> my childhood dream was being a final four guy in cross country. And, um, we just missed the podium by one spot, but of our seven varsity guys, six of us were from the same County, like high school. I mean, really? if you were to like, 
dial in how close we all grew up and how well we knew each other. We all went to the same county or high schools within the same county. That's there a, were a couple, there were two guys from Provo High, two guys from Mountain View, and then me and, and another guy up the canyon. But um, wow. when, when you look at a, a, a geographic representation yeah. of a solidified team, you'd be hard pressed to find. <laughs> You know, there, there's a lot of teams that pe- pull people from all Absolutely. over the world. It's normal. <laughs> we, in the university, yeah. we, we were we were guys that had kind of grown up together, and so to kind of go out on a on a bang, uh, that the 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 silver lining of the story, track and field, which I, I cared a little bit more about, uh, we actually took fourth my senior year. So we were fourth in track. So we did make the the final four cross country. Just just missed the podium, but. Um, in cross country, a little, little easier to identify the, the population size. You've got six of our seven guys yeah. um, that, that grew up together. So you're in high school, and you said you grew up in Indiana, but it sounds like when you were in high school, you were in Utah. And so you had moved Correct. back at that point. And yeah, so could you talk a little bit about I, when – I guess what I'm curious about, you had all these guys who are obviously really, really strong runners – in the same region. So what was it like competing in high school for you at, at that time? <laughs> so it was nuts. It was, um, so I, you know, in Indiana, I was, I wasn't the fastest guy in my junior high. And then I moved to Utah my freshman year. Okay. And I started training kind of seeing how some of these top guys, the, the high school next to me was Mountain View high school and, and they'd won national championships and they were going to national championships against a mm. high school named Bingham high school. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I'm on the periphery as a sophomore watching these national powerhouses and just thinking like, what are they doing? Like, how, how do I get to what they're doing? And so it, it was my sophomore year that I, I had a family member, uh, my dad's cousin who ran track at Utah state, got me a subscription for a year for track and field news. And so mm-hmm. t- talk about motivation. So you, you know, yeah. track and field news is famous for their list, yes. right? So you go down the descending order list and you say, okay, what are high school kids doing in America or, you know, people doing in the world? Mm-hmm. And it's, it's all a numbers thing. You can tell like, I suck. I, I've got to, I've got to improve. <laughs> two, two minutes. If, if I want to be on this list, like I, I've got to change what I'm doing. And so, you know, for, for my, you know, the, the surrounding people in Utah, the people I was competing against as a sophomore, if my goal and my, and my goal was to be a state champion, I knew that I was, well, I, I'm, I'm not projected there now. And so I've got to start working harder. I've got to start making more sacrifices. I've got to start doing things in advance as a sophomore. If by my senior year, I want to put myself ahead of these guys. And obviously they're doing the same types of things. Yeah. And so we, we would have these races that were more the invitational where we had the three, a state champion, the four, a state champion and the five, a state champion going at it. And, all three of us, one of, one of them went to Weber State, um, Joel Atwater, incredible him. runner. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's my age. We graduated high school the same year. And then Nate Robison, who was six at the Olympic trials, he was also a silver. We, we were the 3A, 4A, and 5A champions. All four of us broke four. All, or oh, I can't even count. I'm just, I like the number four. Yeah. All three of us <laughs> broke four. Yeah. Um, <laughs> all three of us were a medalist in the NCAA you know, Division I. So Joel was, I think, a, a bronze. And yeah. Nate and I both, both had a silver. Robeson went to Stanford, um, right? He was uh... – uh, So that was Grant oh, Robeson. Grant Robeson. Oh, and okay. Th- and then there's Nate Robeson yeah. who ran at BYU, and he was um, – oh, okay. So, yeah, Grant went to the Olympics. Um, okay. A- anyway, so you would just have it in this high school scene, and then Josh Rotinsky – he was a sophomore, so he's two years younger, but we couldn't beat him across. He never lost a cross-country race from his freshman to his senior year. And so you've got guys like this, and we'd go to – we'd travel to Arcadia together. We'd go up to you know yes. different meets out of state. We'd go to the great Southwest Classic. So I'd travel with these guys and just try and you know glean a little bit, you know, what are they doing, and just 
they, they were just good guys, um, the friendly mm -hmm. guys and just, you know, good role models. And so that's the cohort that I, I you know, grew up around uh, or kind of those pre-college years. I was surrounded by guys that were national caliber guys that I was just blessed and fortunate to, to kind of cut my teeth well, with, with competitors. It's so important to have not only whether it's on your team or just in your sphere of influence, I, I'll say. I don't know exactly the right word because these are your competitors, but people that you – uh, can identify with like and see like well that guy's running I don't know I'm just making up a number that guy's running 420 and I'm running 430 but he doesn't seem any different than me there's nothing it, it just creates this that's exactly it right it creates this I this confidence that you can why, what, why not me yeah, yeah, why not if you? he like, can do it yeah he, he's doing something in his spare time that I'm not doing or if, if he's more talented I've got to do a little bit more exactly if I want to close that gap and so it, it it's very um it's, it's very personal, but it's also very relatable. Yes. It's, it's it, not this, you know, this person's on a pedestal and they're untouchable, um, but it's, it, it sparks the question of how and what do I need to do um, yeah. to, to close that gap? I think it's interesting because uh, that's kind of like one of those things that you hear if you're trying to improve as in, in any aspect of, of life, right? It's like you hear this thing of surround yourself with the people who are doing what you want to do or, or, or have achieved a certain thing in life, stature mm -hmm. in life, whether it's, you know, maybe financially or business-wise successfully, things like that, right? So it, it applies to anything, but you got to be around the people that are kind of doing what you want to do and maybe are where you want to be so that you can kind of like gain um, some kind of insight into what it is that makes them tick the way that they, that you think you probably need to take in order to get to where they've gotten and it does rub off on you. So, I mean, if you're surrounded by a bunch of people that are not like that, you, you more likely than not, if you aspire to it, you'll stand out for sure. But I think that if you want to get to that next level, you have to find a way to somehow tap into whatever it is that they've tapped into. Um, and then obviously add that to your own, I think, mental makeup, you know. And so I think that you, you I'm listening to you talk about it. And I'm going, gosh, I think he was just. I think you were kind of like just almost like the Matrix, like Neo. You're just plugging into the Matrix. But ah, okay, yeah. I got it. Now I know how to do kung fu. And then you start doing yeah. it. You know, I don't know because yeah, I, download I the new like, life skill. Yeah, right? I, no, I, I kind of feel like from all the conversations we've had, I just feel like that's kind of like something about you, Brian. And even seeing you now, most of our conversations just been we're just talking on the phone and stuff, not video calls, but like your energy is is very. It's unbelievable. I'm like, gosh, I really wish you were on our team because mm -hmm. it's just you, you're a ball of energy probably wherever you are. And but it's wonderful to see. And um, I was going to ask based related to that. Uh, where does where does this come from? This 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 fuel, this passion, this desire to be great. Was there somebody you were at, at some point where there's any whether icons or individuals in yeah. the sport of running or otherwise that were that you were kind of like idolizing and inspiring to be like aspiring to be like yeah i i appreciate you asking that question and certainly i um i need to give credit to you know my parents neither of my parents were athletes but they were both people that gave me lots of opportunities and once mm -hmm. i found running and kind of made it my own thing and that, that was a benefit for me my parents there was no expectation that oh you know you've got to train harder brian I, i'm figuring these things out kind of as i go yep. what they did do is they would they would buy me books um, and so I remember one of my first books that I received was about uh, a bunch of athletes that had gone to the Olympics 
that were of my faith. And so I could identify, okay, they went to BYU, they became Olympians, they yep. had to overcome some of these adversities. Mm-hmm. And uh, w- one of the chapters was um, Ed Eyestone. And so, you yeah. know, as a, as a 12-year-old kid, I'm reading about my future coach. Yeah. And so when, I, when he starts recruiting me, I'm like, well, this is cool. Um, unfortunately, he was at Weber State at the time. And so I, I had to make that difficult decision not to go run for one of my idols. But then um, while I was serving a mission and the, the former coach, um, he sent me a letter saying, hey, I'm really glad you didn't go to Weber State. Guess who's your new coach when you come home? I'm like, yeah, <laughs> it all works That's out. So, yeah. um, but Doug Padilla was another icon. Uh, he was a two-time Olympian in the 5,000 meters in 88 or 84 and 88. Yeah, kind of like a forgotten and, great runner. You know, like he's not somebody people yeah. talk about very much, but he, had, he was amazing. Oh yeah, so many world championship finals, um, and you know, just a, a an incredible competitor. Just had a kick like none other. Yeah. And um, he he lived in my town. There was one time I, I met him. I was at the grocery store. I think I was a freshman sophomore. Like, hey, you're Doug Padilla. He's like, Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, like, what, what do you say when so? And so I'm just like star, starstruck by this, uh, this this distance runner. But it, it was reading about people yeah. and and being able to see that they, you know, in Little League, they, they played sports and then they found running and then they started to excel and then mm-hmm. they trained harder. And, and it really became um, um, a, a realistic probability, not probability, but it just became um, something that you could envision yeah. or I could, I could see myself taking the steps um, and, and then just reading about some of the, the world-class athletes like a Joaquin Cruz um, or a Billy Mills or, um, you know, Sebastian Coe is someone I just love um, mm, how he trained yeah. and just the scientific approach to what he did. And so I tried to add some different elements from some of the greats in, in either their their psychology or their work ethic. And, and when you read those things, um, you, you almost feel like it's it's you're, you're capable of, you know, you're the same species. Um, and so if, if they can do it, you know, what's to say that I can't yeah. now I, re- I recognize, and I still recognize, you know, I, I am not the most genetically gifted person. And so part of the thrill of running from, you know, whether it was junior high or, you know, to, to later stages in my running career was how can I maximize those genetics that I do have and then push the limits or do something that was either told, that I was told was undoable or unattainable. Mm-hmm. You know, one one quick story when when I was when we moved to Utah um, from from junior high to high school, my father taught in the health department at BYU, and the head coach of the cross country and track team, uh, Cheryl James, who was an Olympic coach, and he coached Ice Stone and Padilla. So he was the coach of all these guys, yeah. and I had the chance to meet him. And I remember driving home after like a like a, an office dinner, like a, a company party or whatever, and. Uh, saying, you know, dad, someday I want to run at BYU. And my dad, like, as a good parent, was just like, let's, let's some, let's some real, let's set some realistic expectations. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we still, still joke about it. Like, come on, dad, like, aren't you supposed to like, yeah, follow your dreams. And, he, <laughs> yeah. and, and yeah. so his, his thing was always have a plan B. Like, that, it's nice to dream, but let's, let's be realistic. Maybe you could run in junior college or something like that. And so for me, you know, that wasn't, that wasn't a bad thing. It was, he wasn't trying to push me down. He was just trying to not, not see me get hurt. You know, yeah, so, yeah. And, yeah. You know, like, you know, mentally. And so standard thing, I think, like you said, every good parent will kind of try to, balance out the the, the big things so that you're kind of like seeing still somewhat grounded yeah stay grounded <laughs> no more. But, no but more. at the same time you know i i never so as i'm reading in junior high about these olympians 
my mind's there. I'm thinking, mm-hmm. okay, here, here's the process. But then here I am in the state of Utah as a, as a sophomore and a junior, and I'm not even the fastest sophomore in the state. I'm not even the fastest. But I, but I still have this, you know, this, this dream. And so there, there was always kind of a, a plan for the future. And so by the time I'm, you know, 24, 26, you know, getting to that, that, those Olympic qualifying years, you know, I, I kind of had a map of what I needed to be doing at certain, you know, parts of my life and um i i have to tell you i'm so impressed by this because i feel like as a high school runner i was basically showing up to practice and my coach was like all right today we're running six miles and i was like sweet and i would go run six miles and i would just be like that's it i would go home and like not think about it and i'm i i i don't really like regret it It, it's not an emotional feeling that way but i just look back on that time and think man i was so disengaged from the sport as a as a Mm -hmm. as a as a craft, like as something to invest my mental energy into and, and to plan for and to structure. I, I didn't have that mindset about a lot of, a lot of it. And I think I don't really, I, it took me more time. I think I sort of developed that in college. And once I developed it, all of a sudden I started to improve as you would expect. You start to, you start to approach the sport more right. productively and effectively. But um, I, I'm always impressed when somebody's young and has that approach to what they're doing. And John is kind of like this too. John talks about his background where he, he's, he immediately was like, I running, like, this is it. I am going to be an Olympian. And he started charting one. that path, right? Like reading That's the right. books. Watching yeah. Michael Johnson. Watching right? Michael Johnson. Yeah. yeah it was, <laughs> you know, but it was funny. The books help. The books help. I remember it was so funny. I got second place at a race my sophomore year. So the first year I was running cross country. And the funniest thing in the world, it was like, the first place, you would think you'd want first place. But then I saw what they got. And the second place was the pre-Fontaine book, pre, I was like, oh, I'm so I glad. And, and I was the only one that got it. I was like, that's the, that was second place is like, thing. and I'm like, that book changed my life. That book changed my life, you know? And I was yeah. like, you want to know where my front running came from? It, when pre said uh, anything, if uh, he says running any other way is, is pure chicken shit. And I was like, he's right. <laughs> I can't run any other way, you know? And I, and I can never let that go. I was like, I, I don't, I like facing my fears. I like answering the question, you know? And so I love it. That, those stories, you're right. It's the books are, I, 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 I'm so glad you brought it up. I think that it's great to be a student of your sport or, or, or your, uh, your profession or your craft, like study it. Not because, not because you want to be like the people that you read about, but because you want to better understand what makes you different. And yeah. how do you do that if you don't study your craft? I, I also give credit to my parents. So Christmas time, uh, my, my dad's the professor and, and Christmas shopping was usually dr- driving down to Indianapolis and hitting all the Salvation Army stores. Um, and so we, he, would, right. he would find these books for me. And so I remember some of the first running books that I had were uh, Jim Fix's Complete Book of Running. Yeah. And so it's like yep. this, this big red book yeah, and then yeah. there was the yeah. second Complete Book of Running. I had that one. And so I that so one. I'm reading, you know, my parents, they don't know these things. So they so we'll, we'll get you a book about it. Look, it and says so it's I'm reading the Complete about Book. New- it's like, this is yeah, everything. Everything you need to know. Yeah. <laughs> so, oh, you're supposed to put your right foot in front of your left foot. All right, well, that makes sense. No, but, you know, set, even things about nutrition, yeah. how to run heel, interval training. I'm just like, oh, okay. And so I'm figuring these things out as I'm going. But I wanted to go back to another um, thought about, you know, where this kind of forward thinking of, you know, what's the next level. I was really fortunate to have a junior high track coach that ran, he was a sprinter, but he ran in college, he ran at Ball State. And so just from from the very first exposure that I had to running, I always knew there was a higher level. Yeah. I knew that there was more, that there was, there was, there were places to go that, you know, if, if things worked out, 
um, you know, it could take me places. My high school um, coach ran at BYU. He was, you know, a teammate of Doug Padilla's. And so you're going to get some of that, um, that vision of, you know, there's, there's more, there's opportunities, there's exciting mm-hmm. things ahead. Yeah. Um, and then I had two different high school coaches and he was uh, also uh, an athlete. He was, he was a current athlete. He was kind of a student teacher um, and just a, a really academic mind. And so, you know, by having these, these mentors that already had been there and done some of that, mm-hmm. and so when, I, when I think about, you know, you know, parents, a, you know, when you, w- my kids, you know, whether they, whether or not they love running, you know, I have a daughter that's an incredible artist, you know, musically talented mm-hmm. kids, whatever it is, uh, r- running is difficult in and of itself. And, it, and most people mm-hmm. perceive it as a painful punishment. And so, um, but the lesson for, for, you know, for parenting or for life is, you know, you can inspire your kids, even if it's not your hobby, even if I don't know much about, you know, being an artist, you know, maybe, maybe I need to buy, you know, more, more books for my daughter, give her opportunities to develop her passion mm-hmm. because when you combine the passion and, and the talent and the knowledge, you know, exponentially you're, you're going to make some of those, those improvements that, you know, wouldn't happen without your parents or your coaches uh, either giving you the, those books or inspiring that vision. Yeah. So I, I was, I, I was very blessed that all those things came my way at an early age um, and then combine that with, you know, my, my, uh, my natural love of the sport, you know, I could go out and train and my junior high coach said, if, if your competitor is training four miles a day, you better be running five or he's going to beat you. And so as, as an 11 year old, <laughs> okay, coach. <laughs> you know, yeah, 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 and, yeah. And, and I enjoyed doing it. And so it, there, there was it, it from that early age, it became a game. Like, how can I, how can I better my competition by my preparation? Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and it, it, I know that's, it's kind of weird, but it, it was fun. It was always kind of a game. Just what, what can I do to prepare better, be, you know, be ready for the day of the race. Um, and, and, and there's so many things I, I, I can still quote my coaches, just the different things they used to say. But, you know, one of those things that they would say is, you know, you guys are going to go out and run and I'll know who actually, you know, did the run, who actually worked out, did the workout they were supposed to when you line up for the race next week or something like that. Uh, so there was always right. like, I want to, I want to prove to my coach yeah. that I did all this. Yeah. There's going to be no, no guessing See? that I was, I was doing what I was supposed to do and, that's so cool. They know how to push those buttons, man. Yeah, I know. You know? <laughs> they totally got me. Yeah, it's all- oh my God. <laughs> the, 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 the thing that like right before I turned, uh, I turned pro, um, uh, coach Peterson, um, my, our college coach, yeah. uh, you know, Brian had him. I remember him as well. And I mean, great coach. I mean, great coach. And he, uh, said to me, something that, that, that's one of the quotes that he st- said to me, I think he's probably said to a few people, but I remember him almost like he just knew what buttons to, buttons to press with me. It was so funny. And he would say, you know, um, if you believe you could run a time, you know, you don't need anybody to help you do it in the race. You can go out and do it by yourself. And right. it was almost like, it's like, do you know I read about pre? Do you know I love to run from the front? <laughs> yeah. I know that I can't accept not running from the front. And, and so it was almost like, he's like, whatever time you think you could run, John, you could do it without any help. No rabbits, no nothing. Just go to the front and go run the time and let everybody else figure it out. You know, so I, I raced like that. And I mean, I went out and ran, uh, you know, it's, you know, a 338 personal best in a race in the middle of Sweden in North Shopping because I was trying to get the standard before, uh, uh, was it Rob? Luke Kezik. 
Robin Myers. <laughs> Rob Myers. I love those guys. Yeah. And they were, yeah. we're like, hey, it was like, we're, it was between the three of us. It's like, whoever gets the standard is probably going to discourage the other one. And I get to go rent in the World Championship in Helsinki, right? So I was like, I, I was like telling Mahali Kofleski, my agent, I was like, yo, just find me a race anywhere. And he's like, in the middle of nowhere, it was like raining, massive headwind, no crowd, two high school runners, and myself lined up. And it was like, we told, <laughs> we told everybody, we luckily three other people were willing to do timing uh, splits, right? So as we were driving on the train, I told Mahawi, because I knew what Coach Peterson said. So keep this in mind. You can run right. the time that you need to run by yourself. My personal best at that time was 339. I needed to run 335. Okay. So I was going, okay, we're going to do this, Howie. So I'm mapping it out and I'm giving him 100 meter splits for the entire thing. I said, if I'm off by anything, you guys have to let me know. And so I didn't know the weather was going to be this bad, by the way. I didn't know there was going to be nobody in the race. I didn't know that it was going to be barely anybody in the crowd. So I get, uh, get to the race and we talked to some, some of the people that were there and we got three other people to go to each corner at every 100 meter mark from the 1500 meter start to the finish and every other mark. And I'm just going and they're yelling at the splits. You're on, you're off, you're on, you're off or whatever. Right. And I'm going by myself the entire race. And it was like this all out effort and the headwind on the backstretch was just horrendous. It was like every time I turned the corner, it was like, boom. And the rain was coming down all crazy. I had no idea how fast I was running. And then I crossed the finish line. I thought it was, I thought it was close. And then they tell me, yeah, 338. And I go, I had to have run 330 just now. <laughs> it's like yeah, the, effort effort was, yeah. put, <laughs> the effort that I had to put into it. And it actually became that summer, it was 2005, became legendary because people are like, there's no way you should have been able to run that fast by yourself, you know? But I said, my coach told me I could, you right. know? So it's funny how they know these buttons to push. I just tell that story because I'm sure that you, you had great coaches. And so, I know they were pressing your guys' buttons, you know? Yeah, no question. That, uh, Ed Eystone, was he's a master psychology, not not a literal master. He, he does have a master's degree, but um, <laughs> he, 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 he was so good at bringing us to our best you know, in, in those championship races. That just, mm -hmm. you know, it, it wasn't like a, a huge pep talk, but maybe it was just a lack of a, you know, having to do something just to say, you know what? All the guys that aren't here tonight that are back at home, wishing they were as nervous as you are like congratulations you get to be nervous tonight you know it's like yeah hey yeah, yeah hey, i'm nervous it. yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm, right. I'm glad that, I'm, lucky me i get to be nervous tonight and, and being grateful for the opportunity um and just kind of kind of couching it in in perspective of you know where we're where we are and what we're trying to accomplish um mm. but but certainly you know whether it's coach james or coach Stone or any of my high school coaches you know, it, they're, they're a lot like parents I and mean, you got, you got to parent your kids differently. I've got, yeah. I've got six children and there is no way I could parent any of them the same. Like the, it, the more we try that, the worse we fail. And so <laughs> with the coach, you can't, you can't just blanket all of your athletes and say, okay, this is what I'm going to do. You really have to take the time to have those interviews one-on-one, -on -one, get to know them. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, whether it's, you know, the talks or the actual workouts that you're singling out uh, for, for what that particular runner needs. Uh, I think that that's a big part of coaching is knowing the individual um, buttons to push or the yeah. things to say or not to say or things to do, not to. Can I ask you one question right. about your college experience? Because you mentioned already that you went on a mission and I'm curious yeah. about just in general, one, where you went, but then the other part of that is 
what was as a runner like what how does it what is it like being on a mission are are you allowed to run and if you're not allowed to run what's it like trying to come back from a mission then i, I i'm kind of curious how that experience affects yeah, your career it was uh, again going back to earlier comment that you know my goal from reading all these books you know from a very young age was the olympics and so you know there there was always this you know life plan that okay in this process of high school, probably go a year of college, there's going to be two years of no running, coming back, redshirting, and then 2004 would be that first Olympic attempt. And then 2008 would probably be my, my best shot, just based on when I was born, when the Olympic years would fall. And so, you know, my freshman year, um, I, I qualified for the NCAA final. I ran against Bernard Lagat, and, and I, was, I, was, I was, you know, on a really good pro, um, projection for coming up for, you know, 2000, 2004, particularly probably would have been my best shot for an Olympic year. Yeah. Um, but I, I uh, decided to, to serve a mission and was, was uh, um, assigned to serve in Portugal. Wow. So I was in uh, Western Europe and uh, mm. it was, I was there at the same time that Rui Silva won the world championships. Um, I wasn't at the world championships, but I was reading about it and like, Oh cool. I'm in Portugal and Rui Silva's winning the world championship. What, um, what year was this? Can I ask what? To, so I went um, on my mission 99 to 2001. So, so you would have been mm -hmm. there when Portugal also, the soccer team was going crazy and and, and had the golden yeah, generation Figo. and Figo. And, and oh, really yeah, yeah. It, yeah, yeah. It, it was so cool. Soccer yeah, is such I was, a big sport. I, I was in Portugal that summer when they France beat them on a on a BS uh, offsides yes. call with Thierry Henry and all this other stuff. And we were... I was there with my buddy Martin, and we were so excited for the crazy partying festival atmosphere that <laughs> Portugal was going to have. And when they lost that game, especially in the way they lost it, I swear yeah. the entire country just shut down. Like it was oh, the it, quietest, weirdest environment. It was awful. <laughs> I, I remember we, we were. Uh, I remember watching the end of that game, and Zidane, I think, yeah. um, hit the penalty shot because there was a handball yeah, or some, some penalty that was controversial. Yeah, but yeah. It, it was it was a fun time to be in Portugal. That's um, cool. But 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 uh, as in regards to running, um, so you're one of the rules of being a missionary is you need to stay with your companion. Mm -hmm. And so um, my first area, I was in kind of a rural area, and so once a week you have a preparation day. You can do all your shopping and and you know wash your clothes and and do some sightseeing if if you're in, in an area that has some historical things. And so I would convince my companion to go to a park and he would sit at the park and I'd run laps at the park. So once a week I could run uh, and I'd probably do, you know, That's five so miles funny. or something. Yeah. And then, you know, and then the next area I was, I was more inner city and I, I couldn't run. I'd probably run once or twice a week, a couple of miles. Yeah. Um, we were, we were by the beach. Um, and so we'd kind of go on this, these coastal, you know, little, you know, again, but I could only go at the pace he was going. So if it was eight minute mile, we were doing good. Yeah. Um, right. So yeah, def definitely not training. Yeah. Um, I, I was fortunate at the end of my mission, the, the last city that I was serving in uh, was, was outside of the capital and it was where the national stadium was. And so again, once a week I could, I could actually go to a track and on Monday, you know, run and try doing some faster intervals while my companion was, was in the stands or doing something. Yeah. But you know, if, if I ran a hundred miles on my mission, that, that, that may be an exaggeration. But, yeah. Right. Um, and so then, then, you know, you, you come back off the mission you, you, you know, you're, you know, you haven't gained a lot of weight, but some, some people gain weight, some people don't. Um, but the, the hardest thing for me was, um, trying to up my mileage mm -hmm. and, and kind of reacclimating because all through junior high, all through high school, I'd never been injured and I'd had some like it band stuff and I'd, you know, go to a physical therapy, but I'd never missed any training. And so coming back from a mission, 
you know, my mind is still like, okay, I got to get back, got to get back on track, literally. Mm-hmm. I, I got to get back to my goals. And so I upped my mileage. I started training about three months into coming back. I had a stress fracture in my femur. Mm. And so I'm like, oh, and so oh, wow. you know, I, I know that, um, you know, John, you've been through, I listened to some of the other podcasts, you know, the, the pool training, the aqua jogging, mm-hmm. um, the elliptical, um, I, <laughs> the, the amount of steps I've taken on elliptical is embarrassing. It's, it's just, uh, <laughs> those things are awful, but you know, you're committed to the goal. And yeah. so yeah. Yeah. anything you can do to get your heart rate up, keep your fitness going. And you know, you, you're there kind of commiserating with all the other injured athletes. And so we'd get together and say, okay, what time are you going to the pool? When are you going to be in the training room? So at least you have someone there. Um, but you're also a student. So I can remember, you know, finals weeks coming up. I've got a stress fracture. I've got my book laid out on the elliptical and I'm studying for, you know, biochemistry or whatever it is. And just, you know, <laughs> trying try not to get, uh, uh, nauseous from, you know, motion right. <laughs> but you know, you're, you're committed to the school. And so I, I come back sophomore year cross country. I got a stress reaction in my other femur. So here I'm just like, I just can't get them. Um, I can't get my legs underneath me. Mm. And so I went through all of my sophomore year and into my junior year and still having these injuries. I think I had a stress reaction in my pubic bone. And so um, I was finally able to start putting some some healthy training together by my junior year, and we're already into 2004. And I think John, this is when I met you. I met you in 2004. So you know, mm-hmm. here we are. I'm coming off an injury, and all of the fast races, like the Mount Sachs and the Stanford Invitationals, those things are all done. All the fast times are done. And so there's there's you know, throw out the Olympic qualifying times, and they've changed the rules to to qualify for the NCAA final. Yep. You know, you've got to qualify through the round. So you That's you've right. got to be. Yeah. You know, you make the final in your region, then you've got to be top five or top eight in the descending order. And so I was, I was just kind of, uh, kind of, kind of like March Madness. You know, going back to basketball, yeah. I, I, I was just playing for another game. You know, just you got, you got to make the next round. And so you know, I made it all the way to the the final again outdoors, yeah. but just had kind of burned out. And you know, did, I think I took twelfth and um, didn't go to the Olympic trials, which you know, had I you know, not taking those tiers of a mission may have been a, a, you know, a better 2004 when I was yeah. kind of in my prime. Yeah. Um, but then 2005, um, was finally the year that I started running fat as fast as I did my freshman year. So I, from 1999 wow. to 2005, I didn't have a single PR. Wow. <laughs> so, so, you know, to answer your question about the mission, I loved it. I love, I, I took my wife back to Portugal a couple of years ago and just, it's like no time had passed. Just a love for the people, love for the culture, the food, um, just yeah. everything about Portugal. There's no way I could I could imagine my life without that. But you know, it, it did not advance <laughs> my my Olympic goals any. Uh, it, it, it certainly created some other barriers. Yeah. But you know, in the grand scheme of things, I I do it again. There's no there's no question. But you know, it, it was definitely kind of a stepping stone or, or a. a uh, an impediment yeah. to some of those aspirations. And you just don't know that some guys, they go on a mission, they come back and their sophomore years are just red hot. Other guys, right. you know, I, I had teammates that, you know, were, um, you know, national, uh, junior, you know, world junior championship type qualifying guys that mm-hmm. never, never reached that, you know, all American status or other things after their missions. It's, it's it affects people different ways. There's a- and so I, I, Oh, I, I don't mean to cut you off, but I was going to say just from the outside, the thing that stands <clears throat> out to me about it is that, being on the outside as a as a runner at UCLA, the mission is often seen as an advantage for the BYU runners because they're older when they're you're you're competing against somebody who's two years older. But what you're telling the story that you're telling is that it, it actually because it's a mission where you don't get to run like you're it's not a it's not right. two years of free training when and then you get to come back with like two more years of base like you actually come back and have to really get back in shape. So 
you have to earn it. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's not a given. And, and, and two years physiologically, um, you know, scientifically there, there's probably some advantages to being older and stronger. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but to, to lose that momentum, yeah. uh, and then, and to kind of have to restart, uh, there, there, the, probably the hardest thing for me in making the decision to serve a mission was the uncertainty, the uncertainty of what's on the other side. Yep. So I, I knew what I was doing was working well. And then I made a decision, okay, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to have some faith here. Yep. And if, 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 you know, uh, Olympic grandeur is, is in my life plan, then, you know, hopefully a mission, you know, God, please don't screw this up. Like I'm you know, yeah. trying to, trying to serve him. Um, and so it, it was difficult to, to step away from that at the, at the peak to that point. Yeah, um, I can imagine. You know, John, I know you went to the, you know, you know, world junior team and things like that. And those, yeah. those are the types of things that, you know, are an indication of, of, for your age and, and your ability, just, you know, things to come. And so I, I, I made the decision to um, roll the dice or, you know, yeah, ex- yeah. exercise faith and say, you know what, let's see what happens. And, you know, pe- people like Doug Padilla, you know, uh, Ed Eyestone, um, Ed Eyestone served in Spain. So similar Iberian Peninsula experience, but right. you know, th- there were great things that came later. You know, it wasn't all about how can I get an advantage in college? You know, it, 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 for me, the, the goal wasn't you know, how can I score less points to the NCAA cross country championship? It, it was, <laughs> no, of course, the question was, you know, how, how in this, how, how in my life plan, you know, does my Olympic dream coincide with this decision to serve a mission? And, and it was difficult. Um, but you know, your question was, you know, is there a perceived advantage? Uh, I don't, I don't think most, most people that decide to serve a mission approach it like that. They don't say, well, how, how can we no, gain that makes sense. No, I would say, I don't think, actually, I don't believe anybody perceives it that way. I just think, I think there's a, um, I was just more making a comment less about about the way that it might be perceived, whether whether you guys are aware of that or not. It's one of those things where it's like, ah, like those guys are those guys are all like older than us or something, you know. But but the reality yeah. is, I actually I, I think it's really fascinating that you did that, that that you had that experience. And it took you so long to come back because one of the things that is. Yeah, I know. And actually, I want to ask you about your 2005 year, because 2005 was it sounds like you you finally had your PR. That was John's breakout year. And right. that's the year I believe that you first became a sub four minute miler, right? Is is in two thousand five, and if I'm not mistaken, it's in the race with John, the same race that you guys yep. were in. Can you so tell John, us about that? John does, yeah. So um, from your perspective, I want to know, like, what's uh, like from John's perspective, it's all about John. So let's hear about your yeah, perspective. Well, for, from my perspective, it's all about seeing John's. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Right? <laughs> <laughs> that's my perspective. But, um, my my, you know, as a freshman, as an eighteen year old kid, to run four hundred one. Um, people just ask all the time, Oh, you're so close. Isn't four minutes a big thing? Like, isn't that yeah. like, could you try it a little bit harder? <laughs> and so for five years, <laughs> yeah, yes, I, I, maybe I could, I'm sorry. Good idea. Um, yeah. I'll, I'll try that next time. Thanks coach. <laughs> uh, but for, for five years, just living with this weight of being so close, but on the other side or, or not being on the other side. Yeah. And so my, my senior year in track, I ran four flat. Um, did, I did, you know, kids these days, kids, men these days are running much faster and, and you can't, you can break four and not go to the nationals now. Um, and I still hadn't broken four my senior year. You know, um, I, I was married. I, we had our first child. So, you know, I, I'm a senior in college. I've got a child and wow. I'm just thinking, I, you know, there's more to life than running. And so I've, I've got to, you know, kind of be looking down the road. And so unless I'd landed a, a, a shoe contract or if, if I was going to become a pre- professional runner, which wasn't looking probable, uh, not having broken four and just kind of being, you know, an all American, but not a championship runner. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I thought, okay, you know, if I'm going to ever break four, I've got to go out and do it at nationals indoors, you know, and I'm lining up against guys like Nick Willis and Manzano and all these guys. Yeah. And I'm just like, my, my coach, you know, going back to coaching and what not to do, he said, Brian, whatever you do, don't take the lead. And I, I went right to the front because in my mind, I'm like, this is outdoors. You only run 1500 meters. And so if I'm ever going to be a four minute mile, I got to do it now. Like That's it's over. Like I'm, I'm not going to do this, you know, as a, as a graduated, you know, kid in, 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 a, in a graduate school. And so I thought this is my last shot. So I went out, took the lead, got buried in the last quarter and, and, you know, finished eighth or something. Didn't break four. Um, and so we found out that UCLA was holding a, a kind of a, a three-way meet yes. and they were going to run a, a metric mile or they're going to run a, an actual mile, you know, 1,609 meters and thought, okay, that's, there's one more chance. Like, so you're saying there's a chance. <laughs> so yeah. We go there and, and, you know, training, you're outdoors, Southern California. Um, you know, John's my good friend, you know, just our, that 2004 year, we were both kind of, um, yeah. Yeah. We, we both qualified for nationals. And, and so yep. we just kind of had, and that, and that was really a fun time because we, we weren't the favorites. We had, you know, a lot of the guys that had been past national champions champions from Stanford. Those yeah. are the guys that were supposed to automatically qualify. And so we had, you know, two guys from BYU and two guys from UCLA. It was so crazy. And yeah. like, what did we just do? We just like, and so we John and I were friends. Race. So, you know, here I am, I'm with one of my best friends as, as, as I'm traveling around the country, I get to run with John and I know he's going to run fast cause he's had a great indoor season. Um, and so he goes out and I, I kind of went out and I think I negative split it at John again, like he just said earlier, you know, he's a, he's a front runner. He was yeah. doing his own thing. He, he was going to run 357. Didn't matter what, what we were doing behind him. <laughs> so I, I came across the line and, you know, the clock, you know, showed my time and there was just this incredible, unforgettable feeling of relief. Um, uh, to, to this day, the, the most dominant feeling of breaking forward for the first time after so many years of stress fractures and people questioning, you were so close. Why didn't you try harder? <laughs> Finally, I can say, you know, what was your mile time? It was three, blah, 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 fill in the blank. You know, just, yeah. yes, I, I, I did. And so just to, to do that with John, with, with, with a good friend, um, and, and to have that where I thought I had lost my last chance and to kind of have, have some redemption, um, to kind of just put a stamp on, on my career to say, I, I set out a goal from, from a young age to break four and to uh, obviously do other things, but um, it, it was just very memorable to, to go out and, and uh, do that with John. The other memorable thing about that day was discovering Dee Dee Reese. Ah, uh, you got to go to Diddy Reese. <laughs> so, so I, yeah, I, I was hoping you guys knew what Diddy Reese was. So. Oh. Oh, you, I was like, well, how often did we go to Diddy Reese? Oh, that was like, a, what, every other night? <laughs> yeah. I mean, my God. So close to the track, right? So, yeah. Yeah, it was, yeah, a, it was the secret to my success. <laughs> there you go. I, ice cream and cookies. Yeah, Diddy Reese, for people oh, who don't know. Sandwich. For people yeah. who don't know, Diddy Reese is, I don't know if it's still there anymore. I heard it might have. Oh, no. Be, I'm not sure. But Diddy Reese cookies was, they sold 25 cent cookies. Pretty good cookies. Really great. But then they sold a $1 ice cream sandwich with a gigantic scoop of ice cream between these two, oh. these two giant cookies. And it's not really the thing that runners should be eating a lot. But <laughs> I would say that place had lines out the door all the way around the corner every night. It was just a staple of the UCLA experience to go to Diddy Reese. And, and that's, that's awesome that you had that. that you got to yeah, go. so I got to celebrate my, my four-minute experience with John going to Diddy Reese. Yeah. <laughs> to, to, to this day, that is my favorite dessert. So we'll, we'll make, you know, homemade cookies with some ice cream and just kind of yeah. put them on the um, while they're still hot, melt them over the ice cream. Yeah. And so it's just... That's uh, fantastic. It's a, part, it's a part of me. Well, did it, oh my did it gosh, open, that is so funny. Did breaking four open opportunities? Did you were you able to compete after college then? And 
and continue chasing the dream? Uh, so I wouldn't say that breaking four was the thing. It, it really came down to becoming a, a championship contender. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, going through that, that final season of, of competitive rounds, going through the regionals and the national championship, um, I had one of the faster qualifying times. I knew that competitively I, w- I was in shape. I had a string of, of health um, to kind of give me that confidence that I needed. Um, so I, I made the final um, on paper. Um, Chris Lukesic was probably the favorite. Um, and so, you know, watching or, you know, studying the competition, which I always did, I, I knew what their 800 meter times were. I knew how good they could probably close. I knew what their 3K times yep. were. You know, I, I, you know, whether that was, you know, whether, whether I should admit that or not, I, I was a student to the, to the geekiest level of, of understanding my competition and, and mm. you know, what they'd done. And, and you know, other, other people might say that, you know, you don't want to read too much into that. I just, it, it helped me know and to not have surprises and just, it also helped me plan my race. Okay, yeah, if, if these are the if these are the people in the final, what do I need to know about them? I, d- I don't want some guy to come out of the, out of the blue. Um, so I was the exact I, opposite of you, by the way. I, I know you were. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just thinking. I'm like, I have no idea, and I don't care. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They can try and compete with John. You know, they, they can I, try, but they're gonna fail. I, right? I literally <laughs> had the gingerbread man mentality. I was like, catch me if you can. I love it. That's how. Um, that's my. Uh, so, but I love that you were a student, and honestly, I highly recommend doing the student thing. Yeah. <laughs> so y'all so, know. So the good <laughs> thing about that, I knew that Luke Kezik was the favorite. I knew that he could close, and so my race strategy was uh, one: not to take the lead. <laughs> I did learn a lesson from, from Stone. So I sat in the back and moved my way up through the field, and I was just kind of gauging off. Okay, when's Luke Kezik going to go, and don't let him get away, and be able to close. Um, and I did all those things. And so with a hundred meters to go, I pulled up on his shoulder, was going around to pass him. But what I didn't know was there was a freshman in the field named Leo Manzano. Yeah. And he turned on <laughs> these afterburners that, you know, at, I mean, he just buried us down that last hundred meters. And so I ran the race that was in front of me. I, I, I ran the race that I'd studied and I, I PR'd, I ran 338. Um, I, I broke Doug Padilla's school record, which was a, a you know childhood I you know idol of mine, he was at the race, um, and and he's he's been a, a lifelong friend and you know just a great guy, but you know so it, it all came together. But you know it, it's just one of those lessons where it, in my perfect race I couldn't control a Leo Manzano. No, there can. was no way yeah, I could have right. prepared for that, and you know ha- I, I've never been so you know, personally, physically, physiologically spent after that race, just the migraine headache after and, the, mm. the, you know, barely mm. making it to the finish line that the lactic acid, the jello legs, you know, everything was timed perfectly. The, the psychology, I, there's no way I could have beaten Leo that day. Um, and so, but to this day, you know, I, I kind of, you know, I, when I talk to people, my most successful race, I, I never, you know, I didn't win. And so it's, it's a good life lesson that, you know, sometimes your successes in life, you, you can't control other people. You can only can control what you're, what you prepared, what you put into it and to be pleased with that. I kind of, I kind of want to be satisfied sh- that I, yeah. I came in and I, I want to share a little anecdote that relates because actually one of the, the funniest things about, I think the race that made the biggest difference in my entire career was a, was a small invitational where I finished sixth. And I could have maybe won if I just if you if you look at the, the the names on paper, probably I was better than the guys who beat me in the big picture. But the reality was I had to run. Uh, we ran a team format, a team strategy, which is to stick together. It was an eight k race, cross country. Sorry. So so five k, we're going to stick together, and the last three k, you go as fast as you can go, and you catch as many people as you can. And I was in like fiftieth place. Every all of us were, and and then I just started taking off and chasing people, and I ran the last three k. 
like a maniac thinking this is I'm never going to catch up to the people I'm supposed to be racing with because of this strategy. Right. And, and, um, I kind of, I kind of blacked out in the last 400 meters because I, I had pushed myself to that point and I, you know, I made it across the line. I finished something like sixth, but the reality for that race, when you, well, the way you described yours was I finished and I, I, I couldn't focus. I couldn't think straight. I had like a migraine headache. I got nauseous. Like I, I, all, I had all these effects of how hard I'd pushed myself. And the reality was, though, that the reason why that race was the most important for me was that it defined a different barrier for me of, of what I was able to do in a race. Like, and and mm-hmm. what, how did I feel in this race? Well, it don't, I don't feel as bad as I felt in that race. So obviously I can go a little bit harder, right? And yeah. and that like was a breakthrough for me in a way that I that nobody had ever even given me. The, it was never in my mind that that it could be a way of thinking about racing or that it was an important thing to experience or anything. It was only after I experienced it that I realized, oh, like this is what it means to go to actually hit a hundred percent at the end of a race. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think every every runner, I would imagine, I I know I've had a similar experience where I thought that I was running to my limit, yes. but then I had a, an experience like what you just described. Um, was that was in a cross country race, uh, race for me? Yeah, fr- freshman year, you know, eight k conference championship in in Houston, and I was disoriented and I thought that I was coming up to the finish line, and so I started kicking, and then I realized I had a mile to go, but I felt. <laughs> Like so, it was just kind of like, oh, Brian, you wimp, you wussy. You know, it's you. You could have done. You could have gone much faster if you had just like sucked it up. And so, you know, similar to your experience, psychologically, I, I think we we put barriers out there. But when when we realize that this is what the human body can do, and this is you know, if I go to this level, you know, it'll feel like this. But when you approach that, um, that that's when you know you're really tapping down deep. Yeah. And so you you eliminate that black box or that fear factor of saying i know i can go there yep. i've been there before and now my times are going to start drop because not you know you you did so at the end of a race and you turned it on but you know with that approach you know that's when the times start to drop is when you approach with less fear of the unknown 100% and just going to a race saying i'm i'm going to go in and and i'm not a fear of of um the pain or the you know what the, the result will be by the end of the race if i time things correctly no you're i think you're 100 percent right i i've i'm a huge believer in that and i think you know i think i also really look at it and say you know for young athletes or for people out there like it's how can you create that experience before you're trying to get into a championship race or something right how can you create that experience so that you've you've got that as a tool in your tool belt when you step onto the race that's really important for you because a lot of the time you don't get that experience until you're you push yourself to that limit when it, when it's like in a championship race and it's, uh, and maybe you, you don't have it to draw from in that situation. But, but, um, mm. bringing it back though, I, I want to stick with your story because you, you run this race, Manzano, that was his coming out party. Freshman wins the national championships. And no I agree question. with you. Yeah. I don't know that anybody's beating him on that day. He was, that was his, his day. But so w- what was your next step after that? I mean, you're, you're, what was it? I guess second or third place then at the, at the national. Yeah. Or? So I was sec- second place and it was, it was a blanket finish. There were eight guys that ran under well, 338 or faster. So eighth place was 338. I mean, it was just a blanket finish. And I, I was fortunate to be mm-hmm. second in that blanket behind Manzano. Um, and so, you know, I go back to school and um, thinking, Oh, you know, I've, I've just put a, put down a pretty good time and, you know, you know, uh, second in the nation, there, there's maybe some potential shoe contracts. So I, um, had an agent contact me who was also Ed Stone's agent when he ran pro, Doug Padilla's agent. So the, the, the crazy thing about this story, so the agent who contacted me after this race, he is the one that approached uh, a local 
um, sports writer to write this book that I that I was given in eighth grade. So like literally from the time I'm I'm 12, wow. I'm building to when I'm 24, when I graduate college. And now this guy who inspired me by, you know, you know, um, with the idea of this book yeah. and inspiring people. Now he's my agent. And so he helped me get a contract wow. with New Balance. Um, and so for two, two and a half years, I had a, a I would call it a, a living stipend. It, yeah, it wasn't, yeah. you know, I, when I tell people I was a professional athlete, it's like, it's, it's not what you think. It was basically enough where I could tell my wife who was an angel and you know, was um, help, you know, gracious to help support my dream saying, and we, literally we'd had a conversation. If I can get a shoe contract for this amount of money, then it's enough to justify not, not hanging up the spikes. And so literally the contract <laughs> met, met that threshold. <laughs> like, okay, well, we're, we're going <laughs> to and so um, I was able to go to Europe that summer. And, and, you know, John, as you were telling us about Norway and, and Sweden, some of your, your um, Scandinavian experience, uh, I was in Europe with uh, mm-hmm. Scott McGowan, who was a 337 runner. And so while you're chasing these times, you know, I was there in some races rabbiting Scott and then trying to, trying to get my time, yeah. trying to, you know, be one of those qualifying guys. So. I don't know if you remember that summer we were emailing back and forth and I was reading your times like, Oh my gosh, John is just taking it off. John is killing it. Uh, it yeah. was so exciting. I, I think I was kind of burned out. I, I'd had some injuries after that with a hamstring, uh, but it was just fantastic to, to run in England, Denmark, Finland, were uh, you a few countries. Like Belgium as well. Like, was, back I felt like there was like Houston. I feel like there's a group of people like it's somewhere in Belgium doing stuff or I didn't make it down to Belgium. Yeah. The, okay. the Van Dam. Um, yeah. Yeah. I didn't make it to that one. Okay. Um, and it was interesting because, you know, here we are, these, you know, recent college graduates and we're just two of us, you know, we didn't have a large group of two, two new balance guys. Um, and so we were you know, running one race. We had one race um, that was set up through our agent. And then based on the results of that race, then he would call and say, Hey, can I get these guys next race? Mm-hmm. So, well, we're in England. We literally yeah. didn't know when our next race was. And so he'd call us, you know, with a calling card because it's way back, you know, before yeah. cell phones, I guess, you know, international cell phones. And so he'd either email say, Hey, you need to book a, a ticket to Norway or sorry to Finland. Um, and you know, your next race is in Finland. And so we're, we're online and we're, we're getting on, you know, being our little travel agents, personal travel agents trying to find, you know, uh, the next flight to yeah. Finland. We, so we Helsinki, take a two hour train ride up to La Piranta and, you know, we're just, it, it's, it was so fun just to have that experience and just, you know, it's live wild. European experience. It's wild. Yeah, it's just, yeah. just such a fun I, I experience. Love, I love the bouncing around. I mean, you were yeah. literally one day you're in, uh, you know, Netherlands, next day you're in Belgium, or a couple of days later you're in Belgium, then all of a sudden you're flying over to, you know, uh, you know somewhere in Sweden, then you're back down in, in Europe, heading over to Italy, and then you're back, and then you're flying over to Spain, and, and then you hit something up in Manchester. And then, it's just like, dude, it is... Seriously, I, I, I mean, I think the track and field is so phenomenal. And in Europe, you can feel there, that. Yeah, there's crowds. You, you go there. So oh. I'm actually at, in my office. And um, so th- this little, this was um, when I was in Denmark, mm. I, I ran an 800 meter. And so the, the, what, in addition to some money that, that I got, uh, this was the, the prize. And so it sits on my desk. So, you know, every time I check the, the weather, it's like yeah. a, a, a weather time clock i've got my little you know reminder from denmark you know what's crazy yeah. is, awesome. uh, for anybody so. who can't see it like literally i went to denmark that same summer in 2000 and i bought that clock like that clock that you just showed me i i have that clock as well like exactly <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh that is, uh, that is serendipitous yeah that's crazy <laughs> um 
Bro, I mean, it's a it's a fifteen year old clock. Those, those Danish clocks. Those Danish yeah. clocks. Right? They, know, they know what they're doing. <laughs> they, they, they're, they, they keep on ticking. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, Brian, we so um go go ahead. Well, I was gonna say, you know, you you had this. Uh, I, if you you maybe you can summarize for us a little bit about your your sort of pro career because I do want to talk a little bit about sort of your transition where we're going and and I don't know that we uh, I don't know how how much time we're going to be able to have so I'm sort of struggling with where to go. Um, I want to know I want to be able to have a chance to talk about sort of what you're up to now as well. So what do you, mm-hmm. how long did you train competitively uh, like really as a professional? Yeah, I- after I, I can summarize, summarize it pretty quick. So I, I ran that summer in Europe. Um, I qualified for the USA championships the next year, but then had an injury, wasn't able to compete in that. Uh, I competed in the indoor championships that year around the three K. Um, but most of my two and a half years with new balance, I was injured. Mm. Uh, and that's really just a function of needing to train at a high level and then not having the support system, the athletic trainers and, um, you know, being able to put Humpty Dumpty back together. I, I spent a lot of my college career in the training room, yeah. basically trying to maximize my potential and knowing that if I'm ever going to get to this dream of, you know, you know, landing a shoe contract or national championships, all, all these different dreams that I, I wanted to fulfill, I wasn't going to get them by giving a, an 80% effort. And so yeah. it was kind of a catch 22. I was either going to push the, push the limit and get injured or, not push myself hard enough and not being able to reach that. And, and, and I'm sure that, and I know there are people that, that figure that out and do it much better. I never quite figured out how to stay healthy enough or back off enough to stay healthy enough long enough. And I think that will be forever a, um, the, the challenge of, of high level competition yeah, I, is how I think you just described it. Like that's fundamentally that line is, at some point, all of us, all of us go over retire and- because of injury. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if, if, if we could, if, if, if the name of the game is who can train the hardest and who loves running the most, you know, there would be an exponential growth, but there, there is that, yeah. that limit in finding that limit. And so for, um, I, I made a decision you know, with my wife that uh, we, we'd go, we'd do graduate school. And so I, I decided to do a master's in health administration. I was a graduate mm-hmm. assistant at the University of Kentucky. Um, great program there as a guy that it was a sub four minute miler, John Richardson, that I got to train with. Um, but again, a lot of injuries. And so by the time that I graduated my master's in, in health administration, the, the writing was on the wall that, you know, I'm 28 years old, uh, 2008 Olympics. I've mostly been injured. It's that I, I, it was really hard. It felt like, you know, yeah. as most runners would feel, you know, it got taken away because of injuries that my desire was there. My, my commitment, my, uh, I was willing to do the work, but I, I just couldn't string the things together. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so back, back to my dad's advice to always have a plan B, right. right, right. Um, <laughs> I, I had a master's degree now. And so in 2008, I, I, I landed a job um, that was right before, you know, the, the, the economy tanked a little bit. That's right. That yeah. ha- had I had I delayed um, graduating and going to school then, I, I probably wouldn't be where I'm at now um, professionally. Uh, so I, I work in senior care. Okay. And so you know most of my classmates decided to go into hospital management. Uh, I did an internship at a nursing home, and just totally fell in love with taking care of seniors and just seeing a huge need where mm-hmm. most people see uh, a nursing home as a as a uh, very negative, sad, smelly, dingy. You know, it's, it just doesn't have a good rap. Like there's a very a lot of negative stereotypes yep. associated with long term care, and so looking at the demographics, no, knowing that uh, baby boomers over the the course of my career. 
uh, are going to exponentially need more and more services. There was a lot of job security there. Mm -hmm. And then also just taking a, the challenge of how can I take a negative and turn it into a positive where, mm -hmm. you know, pe people that have a negative association with long-term care, can, can I be, um, you know, a, a bright spot in, in the industry to, to, you know, change the way that things are done. And so, for the first nine years of my career, I, I did institutional, you know, big box nursing home. You know, most nursing homes are owned by a chain, mm -hmm. and you know, learned a lot of things. Worked for a few companies, moved around the moved around the country. Um, during the course of that time, I got into triathlons and kind of got my legs underneath me again, just not killing myself and being injured all the time. I was able to learn to swim, you know, cycling, and and you know, especially in the mountains. Yeah, uh, that's in great. Idaho is great triathlon country, and just kind of got my got my groove back and so I've been I've been running again I was um, gracious to have a friend uh, start uh, giving me some gear through ultra shoes so uh, shout out to ultra yeah um, and Gold, go. Golden Harper and his company and so I, yeah. I, I, I race for them and so every time that I, I tow the line you know 5k's I, I jumped on the track a couple times ran a mile I had to test my my masters um, <laughs> uh, you know level you know had to set some new PRs as a master this summer so I, I jumped in a mile jumped in a 5k on the track um, but professionally, um, I, I met someone three years ago that uh, was an entrepreneur and kind of an investor. And I shared with him an idea of instead of a, of a traditional institute, institutional nursing home, creating a neighborhood of, of homes. And so shrinking the size to something more home-like, but the same level of care. So we still had the, you know, the therapy, the nurses, the CNAs mm -hmm. that, you know, provided the, the, the daily care, mm. but we would break that up into homes. And so We've, as we've started a company, it's called The Restoracy. So we restore health, we restore dignity, and we restore the familiarity of home. And so it's kind of a, a unique name, but it tells a story of, mm -hmm. of what our goal is. And so, you know, we restore, you know, this home-like environment for people that otherwise would be institutionalized. They'd be down a long hallway and, you know, passing medications and, you know, taken to an activity and just kind of forgotten. Um, and so the model that we've created, you know, I, I really look back to, um, you know, some the things I learned through running and, and just kind of a commentary on the value of, of doing the things that I did with running and that anyone does with running. If you can't transition or if you can't apply those, those life lessons into um, something practical or something that, you know, improves the world, improves the world around you, you know, then, then it's just a hobby. And it's a good hobby. Don't get me wrong. I love running. But, you know, just to to take something and, and kind of shoot for the stars and have a goal that, um, because, because what we're doing is, is not typical. Most actually we went to 11 banks that all turned us down for this investment and said, no, it's, uh, that, that's kind of a, you know, that, that's, that's an idea that hasn't been proven. That, that's exactly, kind of an, yeah. an outlier, a, a wow. big risk. And so um, as a runner, we take risks, we train, um, at these levels that are, you know, we're, we're prone to injury because we're training so close to that line. And so it's, you know, it's just how, how I'm wired that I don't want to just be a nursing home administrator. I want to change the industry. I, I want people when they need this level of care to have an environment where their family members can say, Oh, well, you know, I'm not going to institutionalize my mom, but I can have her in this home and she can get home cooked meals. She can have personal attention and, and I don't have to feel guilty that, you know, I'm not able to take care of my parents. And so, you know, we just opened in May in the middle of a pandemic that yeah. if you watch the news, you know, senior care doesn't oh have a good rap, yeah. especially this year. <laughs> and so we're like, okay, we probably didn't, obviously we didn't know a pandemic no, right. was coming. We, we, we broke ground a year ago. And so again, you know, more, more trials, more adversity, more, more stress fractures professionally, you know, with, with all these different 
challenges with COVID. It's like, oh my gosh, I, I, another another life obstacle that I've, I've got to kind of work through and try and overcome. But the nice thing is, and, and, and you know, I'll just use an example today. Today was a rough day. You know, not everything's smooth starting a company and you're humans taking care of humans and, you know, starting a new company, mm. you've got to put, all of your, put in all of your systems and processes. Yeah. And there's just, you know, there's, there's some hard stuff you got to do. But, you know, uh, knowing that I was, you know, invited to, to participate in this podcast and thinking about, you know, what have I learned from running? Being able to kind of, you know, take, take the situation and not be afraid of it and just kind of go in and push through and do something hard and painful. It isn't scary. It's like, okay, I can do this. You know, it's, it's so, and you have to do that day in and day out. And, and yeah, certainly there are, yeah. there are, there are good days. And what started as a bad day and just with, with that mental switch, just, you know, today was a great day. You know, we, and, and that's, that's, that's life. I mean, there are good days and bad days, but um, so that, you know, to answer your question in a, in a long-winded <laughs> response, um, no, I think I, I, you know, started a new company and trying to do something that, um, isn't typical, well, uh, but something that I'll tell you, Restoracy, I'm passionate about. Restoracy is 100% what I have wanted to see in the, I don't know exactly the term long-term care or, or the, the, like my grandmother had a lot of issues and was in long, you know, long-term care uh, at the end of her life and did not want to be there, did not want to be in that no, facility, did not want to be yeah. in any part of it. She wanted to be at her house. She wanted to have her her bed. She wanted to have her everything. And um, the reality is uh, it's not possible to do that for everybody. It, yeah. at, at a certain point, it becomes impossible. But There's a crossroads of safety exactly. and independence. There, and so when, when safety is, is the you know, the outlaw or the, the indicator you have to go with, we have to go with that. And that's exactly the yeah. thing is that there was no in between, like there was no, there was no alternative about what you're offering that would have allowed her to have that same sense of, of privacy maybe, or of, of her own being living in her own place. So I, I, um, yeah. I did not know that there was anybody trying to do it honestly before we, you know, so the fact that you're on this pod is it's fantastic. And that's super inspiring to me. It is exactly where I think the industry needs needs to go, and and I hope that yeah. uh, you can make your model work and replicable because um, I think it will be better for everybody who's involved. I a hundred percent believe that. Yeah, well, thank you. And I just want to say too, the thing that I, I'm glad that you, you know, have had the foresight to think about, like, well, what would I say about what I've, what have I learned from the, the you know, or gained uh, from you know, your efforts in, in the sport of, of track and field and, 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 uh, the, the, the world of running. And, and it's funny, the thing that kept popping up in my head was that it gave you the ability to endure, you know, learning to endure. Yeah. And I think I sometimes forget that. Cause I, I'm wondering, like, uh, somebody said to me the other day, Oh, it was Marhawi Kafleski. Says one, I love him. He's. I'm so grateful to have people like him in my life. He said to me, "If this one thing that stands out about you, John, even amongst the, these amazing individuals and and people that he represents, he says, geez, Louise, you sure do know how to be persistent. You are the most persistent <laughs> guy, I, a person I've ever met in my life. There's like when you say you're going to do something, like he says, I remember Gobi more 13 years ago. I remember." You're talking about this. This is for the fact that you are where you are with it today. He says, it's not even the fact that it, it, it is where it's going. He says, 
says, thank Brian Green for that. <laughs> you know, he's, well, like, yeah, and he says, I said, I'm smart enough to find smarter people than me. <laughs> you know? That's the key to success. Yeah. That's yeah. the key to success. Surround yourself with great people, you know, that, that, that believe in you and honestly have the mm -hmm. foresight to tell you what not to do, you know, and, right. and, and then having the willingness to listen to them, you know. Um, but he, he said, you know, you, you, you were so persistent. And I'm like, well, where in the heck does that come from? And I'm like, it came from running all the time. It came yeah. from being an endurance athlete. So I love that part of your story so much because it's very clear that you've embraced the ability to endure. Yeah, I think that's, it's, it's certainly stems from the running to, mm -hmm. um, to, to be persistent and to, to dream big and to not settle, mm -hmm. you know? So I, I think as runners where there's, there's so much, um, you know, uh, concrete evidence of your fitness or, you know, you've got, um, uh, what's the word? Um, it's very so analytical. You, know, like, you can see the numbers for your, your benchmarks and, and where yeah, you're at physically, right? It's very yeah. objective. objective. I, I yeah, can never yeah. remember that word. So it's very objective. Yeah. And so, you know, when, when someone says, um, you know, what is your goal with running? It's very objective. I want to run this time. Yeah. I want to do this. Yeah. And so by, by having a very, very specific goal, um, it, 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 it's easy to create a clear path. Um, and so in life, you know, sometimes goals aren't, aren't as clear cut as that. Mm -hmm. Um, but, but going through the process of achieving those goals to, to set smaller goals and to, to make sacrifices and to not give up on the vision. Uh, you know, like John was saying, you know, go be more was, was something that was conceived 13 years ago. I, I, I first had this, this vision or this idea about 10 years ago in mm. one of my first nursing homes when I thought, man, this is awful. This is a ter <laughs> right. terrible place that people should live. But I mean, someone's got to take care of them. And so, you know, I wanted to, to learn the industry and, and, and try and, you know, from a culture perspective. So basically for most of my career, I'm trying to change the culture within a broken system. Yeah. And it's just so hard. And unless you fundamentally build it from the ground change up the and, yeah. and change, change right. the system, yep. you're going to, you're going to be, you know, trying to retro the right thing into the wrong environment. That's and right. so to, mm -hmm. to do it simultaneously, it, it's really the only way you can break the model that's been put in place. Like, like you were saying, Brian, for your grandparents, for our parents, baby boomers, they do not want to experience what they saw the prior generations go through. Right. Mm -hmm. And so hopefully you know, we, we can model a new way, you know, something more progressive, something more personal, mm -hmm. um, something that, that is still needed. You know, ideally, mm. like you said, these people would prefer to be in their own home within the, the walls and, you know, the, you know, the, the, com uh, the comforts of their own home. But if we can provide some of those amenities like personalized meals and attention and, you know, relationships with the caregivers rather than being one of 20 people they're assigned to, to keep clean, um, mm -hmm. it, it just becomes very institutional. And so if, if we can, you know, have a, a higher staffing ratio and a more intimate model, yeah. Um, uh, yeah. It's, it's very rewarding. And, and that's, that's um, intrinsically, you know, there's not a lot of money in running. Like very few people actually make a dime running. That's right. So that running in and of itself is just an intrinsically, you know, the, the, roar, the reward is in itself. Um, mm -hmm. One of my, my favorite um, competitors, uh, Nick Willis, I think summed it up after he won his first medal. Um, they said, does this now validate everything that you've done now that you're an Olympic medalist? He's like, no, like I've always loved it. And, you know, had I not been a medalist, I still would have loved the journey. So, you know, just that perspective of yeah. that journey of, of becoming. Um, and so, you know, the intrinsic values of all the things we've learned in running all the, all the racing, uh, you know, um, uh, Bob Wood, my, my, my agent, you know, early on said, you know what, if you ever start chasing the money, 
uh, you're you're never going to go far in the sport. And um, you know, there there wasn't a lot of money to begin <laughs> with, so that, that that wasn't a big problem. But um, it, it was just the the intrinsic value of so so you know for starting a nursing home company, you know, doing it the way that we're doing it. The reason that most people don't do this is because there's not there's a more efficient way to take care of seniors if you do it the traditional way. Yes. And so the value for us is not, you know, how can we become uber wealthy? You know, we, we want to feed our families. Don't get me wrong. And, and like you said, Brian, we would love to replicate this. We can't replicate it if it's not profitable. If, if this That's is right. a nonprofit or a, or a break even proposition, then we are, we will only serve the people in this region of this, this corner of Indianapolis. And so for us to, to grow this vision, we, we have to both be, you know, successful financially, but we also have to expand the vision and, and you know, help change the culture of, of, the, of the industry. That's right. um, and so there, there are some intrinsic things that are way outside of money. And so, you know, when you're sitting down with a family and, and they're telling you things like, you know, I'm so glad that we moved mom here instead of where she was at. There's no money with that. Uh, that doesn't pay my bills. But it, that's, yeah. that's the type of thing that we get from running where we know we've done something worthwhile we've done something that you know we've, we've accomplished something mm-hmm. that's meaningful that you know that you know part of our our life journey we've done something meaningful and so you know you know pr- athletically or professionally um it, it's just fun to be chasing something doing something different doing something new doing something that's um a challenge uh, you know when you wake up and, and life's easy um you know my, my wife you know, i think she she said it best she, she listened to something or, or saw something you know what if what if mario brothers was mario starting just walking across the screen until he got to the flagpole <laughs> like all right well well that was easy so no one would play that game that that would be boring so part of the fun of life is how am i going to get over this challenge how am i going to not get you know eaten up by this guy or fall down this trap or whatever yeah. so part of the fun of life is going through the challenges of of overcoming becoming something being better go be more than what you thought you could there i got it i, I knew I, I had to weave go be more back <laughs> I, so. I wow i mean i just want you to keep going and, and basically keep explaining go be more because yeah. that's, what, that's 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 what it is it's the funniest thing i i, I said it to brian um at one point, I said, gosh, I really just feel like we just came up with the words that everybody's been saying their entire life. When they talk it, about, like, improvement, when they talk about, like, making progress, and they say all this stuff, and I'm like, yeah, you you want to go be more, you know? And it's like, yeah, yeah that's right. It, that's what it is. It, and I'm like, it's so weird how those are the words that we've all been saying, and yet we just didn't have the words until maybe until now. I don't know. I mean, I, I, you know, it's, I feel very humble that this is a phrase that makes so much sense. You know, but you're describing it so well. It is so easy to identify with because I I think that is a natural human tendency to want to be more, whether it's to be a better father or, Mm -hmm. you know, more religious or, you know, a better disciple or, um, you know, a a better, you know, better in your profession or, you know, the, the, you know, the top of your trade, go be more. um, I I think just encapsulates the essence of, of existence, this desire to become, um, so, you know, my, my religious perspective is I want to become like someone who was perfect. I know I'm short of that, but part part of the, the life experience is to be more, mm-hmm. to become and to improve from this, you know, imperfect person that I am. I want to be more. And that's what drives me. And it's, it's the lifelong pursuit. Like, <laughs> I'm, I'm not close. I'm, but but it's, it's nice to have something that you're shooting for where you want to go be more, you want to be better. Because 
the, again, there's that intrinsic value of, of self-worth mm-hmm. of, you know, it, it's, um, you, you talked about it, John, in your, in your, um, you know, your, your gingerbread man, um, perspective that mm-hmm. when, when, when you, be, when you become more, when, when you become a better person, so you know, professionally, if I provide a better setting, I've made the word, world a better place. But it's because of you know, a personal initiative or if, you know, if you know, I like the phrase, whatever you are, be a good one. You know, if you're a teacher, yeah. I've, I've got some of my teammates that are teachers and I, and I read about what they're doing and the awards they're winning with teaching. Mm-hmm. They're mm-hmm. being more, they, they are, you know, whether it's coaching, whatever you're doing, if you go be more, You've just made the world a better place, and the the people that you touch, it's this positive snowball. Um, so I I love the phrase that you've come up with, and like you said, John, it's they're words that we all know. We've just never put in succession. Um, yeah, and so it's, it, it captures it captures this it captures that story. I think that, that you're describing so well. I mean. Jeez, I feel like everybody says it so much better than we do. <laughs> it's amazing. And I love right. it because, but that's so honestly, it's a testament to the, I think this universal uh, story and message that, that resides in all of us. And I always kind of say like, it's like our heart is like the oven and our dreams are like the gingerbread man. And it needs, and we need to set that, 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 yeah. those dreams free, you know, and, and it's cooking in there. And a lot of times we get scared and we like, we don't want to let it, let it out because we're afraid that it's going to get consumed by the world. But it's like, it's the thing that will set the world on fire in the best way possible, you know? And we need to set those dreams free because that sets more, the better parts of the world free as well, you know? And we are the world. We are that, you know, yeah. that, we're, that, that thing that we talk about, <clears throat> making the world a better place is really just helping people be the best version of themselves. You know, it's not doing something to the world. It's literally doing something to what makes the world what it is. And it's each other, you know? So what what I, what I love about that is there's no downside to that perspective of life. There's, there's no one can say, well, that's, that's selfish or that's, if you go be more that, that you, you improve the, of the lives of those around you. That, that, That is, it is the most motivating and least selfish way to, to make the world a better place, to go be more, everybody wins. It's, it's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I love no, it, Brian. Thank you so much, Brian. Thank you yeah. so much wow. for joining us, Brian. I, I've really enjoyed hearing your story. I have I've uh, spoken with John about you in the past, and I've known about your story about the race in, in LA and you know Breaking Four and all this stuff, but um, it's been so great to catch up with you. I love what you're doing now. I really, really do. Um, I'm really passionate about the the like not being in that space but that 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 space uh, of long-term care get improve and to see sure. that you're trying to do it is just uh really that really inspires me so i i uh thank you keep going on it keep us up to date on everything you're doing and we will um i hope we will stay in touch and 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 be a part of your journey thank you john thank you thank you brian appreciate your having me on your show today yeah you you you're lovely uh brian um you know how I feel about you, man. And I admire the work that you're doing as well. I didn't know it to the extent that you're doing it. I knew, I knew some about it, but the, the, what, what you shared, I appreciate you sharing it. What a wonderful vision you guys have. And um, it's so happy to share this story and that aspect of your, of your journey. And uh, keep up the great work, man. I know that you're put, pouring your heart and, and your spirit into it. I know that you have such a great support network and your, and your wife and obviously your kids uh, I know, love you to death, and and so um, and you got you got a great network of people, and um, 
and you're just special guy. So just keep up the great work. We're all here to celebrate you and what you're doing. And uh, so happy that we have the special bond that we do, man. I feel very fortunate to have you in see, my life, it, and, and see, I love was, your story, man. So thank you, John. See all those all those warm ups before and after, and the, the cooling down they pay off, right? Yeah, These relationships sure they, do. they don't go <laughs> no, away. Really. So whatever our coaches told us not to do, uh, th this is what it's all about. So yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm, they, had, they had they had their moments. They pressed the buttons that we needed to perform, <laughs> but that 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 part of it, it's like, hey, no, and encourage the relationships because. Ultimately, uh, and we do talk about this a lot, and we're going to talk about this more as we dive, as our company grows. When we talk about sports and when we talk about relationships and the athletes themselves, it's so important to nurture and, 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 and remind the athletes of the life that they will be living long after they're done competing. And what you do in that world when you're competing, it matters so much because in many ways, I believe that the athletes in, in, of the world are some of the most influential and inspirational and I think um, dynamic contributors to our world. And we need to make sure that we remind athletes that your greatness lies well beyond the track and field, you know, because we really do make the world, um, I think, in many ways, a better place because of what we learned. Through, our, through competition. So yeah, no um, this is great. You know, we're all doing great things. We're trying to do great things and, and we can contribute to the characteristics that we display and, and everything else outside of, of what we did in sport because of what we did in sport, you know? Well said. Thank you again, Brian. Pleasure. All right, Brian. Thank you, Brian. Thanks, John. Pleasure to be with you guys today. All right. Hey, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that episode. I've got a couple updates I want to share before we go. First, please help us reach new listeners by giving us a review on iTunes. It can also really help to get some of our harder-to-reach guests. To make it extra easy for you, I put a link into the reviews at the top of the show notes. Second, have you joined the Just One Challenge yet? It's just one push-up a day for 30 days. That's right, just one. Don't tell us you can't do just one. Join us on Instagram at justone.challenge and join the easiest, most effective program out there to help you overcome your inertia and get started. Third, podcast t-shirts. You can get yours at gobimore.co. For all of us at Gobimore, we are what the world is chasing, and we hope this podcast helps you become what the world is chasing too.